Good morning, Gateway. We can start making our way to our seats this morning. It's good to see everyone. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving week. Welcome back. We know a lot of folks are still traveling and coming back from vacation with their family and friends this week, but it's great to see everyone here. I'd like to welcome everyone who is watching from home or in the gym. It's great to have you with us as well. Uh, we have a few announcements to make you aware of some things in the life of our body in the next few weeks. Going through the Christmas holidays, we're excited about. The first thing is for men, there's going to be a family shepherd study uh, with Mr. Mark Wilkie. I don't know if there is Mark here. He may be out of town. Okay, they're in full. So Mark Wilkie is going to be leading it on Saturday, December 12th at 8 a.m. It's going to be a book discussion on this book right here, Calling and Equipping Men to Lead Their Homes as Family Shepherds. It's in the Resource Center out in the hall. So we want to encourage any of you men that desire to be a part of this group. Uh, you get to read it and discuss it. More details are on the blog at gatewaybaptist.com. For the ladies, there's going to be a Christmas fellowship on Monday, December 14th. Be a game night with Christmas snacks and an ornament swap. Uh, Miss Trish Butterfield's heading that up. So if you have any questions, you can talk to her. And information is also on the blog. Um, in two weeks, we're going to have our annual business meeting on Sunday, December 13th at 5 p.m. It's a great night to come here and hear ministry updates from different areas of the church. Uh, we will cast vision for 2021, talk about some of those things, and then approve the 2021 budget. Uh, there will be limited child care for that night. We'll make you a little more aware of some details about that later. And re uh, regarding the 2021 budget, it will be available tomorrow by email to all the members. And if you would like a quick copy in the office, it's available for review that you can pick up. Um, as always, uh, we welcome over the next couple of weeks, if any of you want to come in, grab a cup of joe, a cup of hot tea, sit in the office and look over it in detail. You absolutely can do it. It's a joke. Y'all can do that, but who would want to do it? But you may. There's a couple copies in there. You can sit at the desk, thumb through the budget, look through some things. They stay in the office, but we welcome that to happen. We have open books here to see everything um, and before we approve it at the annual business meeting. We're coming down the home stretch of the elder nominations. We're very excited about that. Next Sunday, we're going to get to hear from the men who have been nominated, hear their testimonies, hear their heart of why they feel called to function in that role. And then in two weeks, December 13th, uh, we will have a ballot vote for members here during the service where you'll be able to put it in the boxes in the back or out at the door as you leave uh, to vote on those elders. And lastly, we get to enjoy communion today as a body. For those of you that are home, we wanted to give you plenty of time to prepare so you can go get your elements to get ready for that. And for those here in the sanctuary, there should be one in front of you in the little cup holders below in the seat in front of you. And if not, we have extras in the back you can get. And in the gym, there's a table in the back with them for you as well. So we're very excited to be able to partake of that together as a family today. So if I could please have you stand, we will prepare our hearts for worship, and I want to read a scripture for us. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's worship our hope today. Everlasting life 
began to breathe and out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me no jesus just Oh, no. 
deep your love for us, God, that your wounds have paid our ransom, God. As we sing this song, Living Hope, God, that our hope is found in you, our peace is found in you, Father. You are our hope in life and death, God. You are Jesus Christ, our Savior. Praise you in this place, God. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. We're about to do one more song. Um, and it's a perfect song for this Thanksgiving season. Um, I know that the day is over and all the food may be gone uh, and the families have gone home. But even if it's not on the day in the calendar, we still have to remember to take time, be intentional about just remembering all the gifts that God has given us, all the ways he's blessed us. 
There's so many things in this, in our world, and in this season of our country to be angry about, and so many things to distract us from God's blessing. And I just want to do this song as an encouragement to us to remember to be thankful. to 
Thank you so much for the truth and the reminder that Andrew just sang for us. God, we should live a lifestyle of gratitude, a lifestyle of thanks, to always be reminded of how good you are and faithful and just. God, we are so blessed just in knowing you, not even anything that you've done, just for who you are, <laughs> just knowing the God of the universe and having an intimate relationship with you. There's just no words. It's just so amazing to thank you, delight in knowing us, spending time with us, and even beyond that, God blessing us with good things, but more than anything, just yourself. So Lord, we thank you that we come this morning and worship and praise and lift up the name of Jesus and exalt you. Lord, I pray we never take that for granted that we can do that in this nation. Well, there's places all over the world right now where there's persecution. You could be murdered or put in prison for what we're doing today. And God, we just thank you we have the freedoms that we have to be able to exalt and lift up the name of Jesus. And Lord, I just pray for all of us here as a Gateway family as we've come out of one holiday and flow right into the next. I just pray, God, you continue to remind us the opportunities that we're going to have over the next few weeks, open doors that you're going to give us divinely to live our faith, to share our faith, to show our faith. God, there's going to be, this is a season where people ask questions, where there's a different atmosphere and a, just a different um, aura around everybody during this season. And I pray, God, you would just allow us to be sensitive to your spirit, to know there's moments to share, to ask questions with family or friends or you know, fellow employees in social settings, whatever it is. God, this season, this Christmas season may be the day of salvation for some that we know. And I just pray that we're sensitive to that, that we're open, that you would guide and direct our steps in that way. Prepare our hearts, God, to share the hope that is in us, as we just sang, and that we can experience that this holiday season as salt and light and as your ambassadors. Lord, again, we thank you so much for the relationship we have with Capitol Heights Middle School. God, what a joy it was this past week to see people congregate across from Lee High School with food and ham and be able to bless many families for this Thanksgiving season. God, we thank you so much for Principal Harrison and his desire to see the gospel come to the school for people to love on his kids. We thank you for the opportunity for the Bible study to start again this Tuesday. We just pray, God, that you give Seth and Megan Rodebeck and all the volunteers, God, wisdom, discernment. Um, God, that you would draw these kids back to that study so they can not only hear the love of Jesus, they can see it through Seth and Megan and these volunteers that your gospel would go forth. So again, we just thank you that we have an inroad and a relationship in that school. Lord, we thank you for the Montgomery Baptist Association that we partner with, that we support each, each month with our budget. And we thank you for the director of missions there, Neil Hughes. What a dear friend he is to all of us in this city. We thank you, Lord, for their ministry and what they're doing throughout the city to meet practical needs uh, with food and, 
and just anything that comes up in different churches or communities, that they're ready at a, just on a moment's notice, God, to bring the love of Jesus and to show your mercy. We pray you continue to bless them, provide for them and the staff, and give them wisdom and vision, God, for 2021 of what you desire to do in this city. And Lord, we thank you that we get to pray for unreached peoples. And Lord, just put on my heart this week, looking at our own community, God, and what's coming up during this season. Lord, we just want to lift up this morning the Jewish community in Montgomery. God, there are many in this city, uh, some I know personally, Lord, that this is a season where they celebrate Hanukkah in a little over a week, where they look to Old Testament writings and different festivals and, and um, different memories they have of the temple and um, Hanukkah, meaning the festival of lights. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit of conviction, your spirit of repentance would fall on this city in our Jewish community. That God, you, your, long, your arm is not too long to save. You can save anyone. You can draw anyone. You can convict anyone. And we are crying out for your mercy over the Jewish community that sometime during this season, God, as they're reading Old Testament scripture, as they're, they are looking ahead to the Messiah coming, that you would do something and stir something in them, that they would see you for who you really are, that they would know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that you have come, Emmanuel, God with us. So we pray, God, that you would bring salvation and repentance to those in the Jewish community, those that we may know. This may be a year that you desire us to be a little more bold in our faith and take them out for coffee or have them over for dinner and ask questions. But God, we know you are able to save, and we just ask for you to do that this year. Lord, we thank you again. We just sang, we are so blessed. You are so good. We thank you for the offering this morning that people leave here that have given online. We thank you for the resources that you provided. We thank you that even putting together the budget this year, God, just to see how good you are, how much you have blessed us so much, how much has been put toward ministry in the city and the nations and providing for so many things. So we ask you again, God, to continue to bless that we can use these for the sake of your kingdom. And Lord, again, we thank you for our shepherd. We thank you for Grady, for his heart to love us, protect us, serve us, teach us. We thank you for his heart, Lord. And we just pray this morning you would give him energy and refreshment, Lord, as he comes to bring your word. We pray your Holy Spirit would guide and direct and empower him this morning as your word comes forth. And again, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. You are good and just and faithful. And we just want to continue to exalt you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Gateway family. Oh, that doesn't sound very exciting this morning. Good morning, Gateway family. I know it is a dreary, rainy morning, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and I am so thankful that we still get to be together to worship the Lord this morning and sing his praise and be reminded, as Andrew just sang, to, to count all our blessings. There are gifts we do not deserve from the hand of God, and we're so thankful we get to be together to remember these things and to think about these things. Did you find James chapter 5 this morning in your copy of God's Word and on your Bible app, James chapter 5. Now, while you're finding it, I want you to think back to your childhood. Now, for some of you, you're living in your childhood. Some of you, this may be a long time back, but think back to your childhood for a minute. And did you ever make a promise to a friend when you were a kid, but you had no intention of keeping it, so you crossed your fingers and put them behind your back so you wouldn't have to keep your promise? And so your friend's like, hey, will you go to the park with me later? And you're like, uh, sure, I'll definitely do it, but you've got your fingers crossed, and so you're planning on actually go to the movie with some other friends instead, right? If you ever did that as a kid, or did you ever say as a child, yeah, I promise, cross my heart and hope to die. You try to somehow boost what, the credibility of what you're saying with this pledge crossing your heart hoping to die if you didn't do it. Do you ever make promises to your parents you didn't plan to keep? 
Do you ever say, oh, sure, Mom, if you'll just let me go out with my friends tonight, I promise, I promise, I'll clean my room as soon as I come in. I won't complain one bit about it, right? Do, have you ever done that as a kid? Have you ever done that as adults? We may not cross our fingers anymore, but do we still struggle to keep our word? As we continue in James's letter this morning, we're going to return to the topic of speech once again. And it seems like a common theme. We've seen speech over and over and over as we study James. It's one of his dominant themes throughout the book. And he comes to the topic of speech again, particularly how we view keeping our word, how we view keeping our promises. Now, we're in a section of James about trials. So what in the world does our speech and promises have to do with trials here? Well, let me just remind you where we are. This section of James is chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. This is all about patient suffering. And just to remind you where we are and where we're coming to this morning, we've seen so far in this section the expectation that we will have trials. The trials or hardships in life is a normal Christian life, and we need to expect to have hardships. We've seen the command that as we are walking through those hardships, that we're to patiently suffer. That the midst of hardships, the expectations that we're to be patient, we're to patiently suffer, we're to actively wait, we're to do the good we can do while we're waiting. We saw last week that um, James gives us examples to emulate of what it looks like to patiently suffer in the hard times. He took us back to the prophets who kept speaking in the name of the Lord, even though life was hard for them. We see the example of Job, who kept the faith even in the midst of all of his trials. In the midst of this section, if you remember from two weeks ago, James pauses and talks about our tongues, about our speech. In the middle of all this section about suffering and trials and being patient in them, he gave us a command to not grumble, to not complain, to not lash out at other people. Because James knows the propensity we have in trials to take out our hardships on other people and to lash out at people when we ourselves are hurting. Well, as we finish up this section today in verse 12 this morning, he has another interjection about our speech again. So basically what James does in this section, he gives us two verses about trials. He gives us a verse about our speech, two more verses about trials, and now a verse about speech. Again, it's really a beautiful pattern he lays out. When we come to this last verse, he talks about trials in our speech. And the reason he brings this up, because friends, when we are in hardships, we have a propensity to promise things that we can't deliver. We have, a prom- we have a propensity to make promises of things we really can't do. We may make promises to other people when we're in hardship. Say, I promise I'll call you back tomorrow about that. It's been a hard week. Just give me one more day. I promise. We know we may not really be able to do that. The classic over the years, oh, the payment's in the mail. I promise. Just give it a few days. The payment is coming. But how many, if we think about it, how many even wedding vows have been broken over the years in the midst of hardships? where commitments and promises have been broken because life gets hard. But friends, in the midst of trials, not just do we make promises to other people we can't keep, how often do we try to make promises to God and bargain with God in the trials? God, if you'll just make this trial go away, I promise I'll give more to missions. God, if you'll just heal me, I promise I'll stop that sin pattern. God, if you'll just let me get this new job that'll be so, so much better, I'll start helping out in that ministry. And friends, we try to bargain with God with promises as if we have anything to bargain with, which we don't, which is a whole sermon for another day, but we try to make promises to God in these hardships. So in the midst of this teaching of suffering and hardships, James once again comes back to the top of our tongue and to our speech and how we keep promises. And so as we look at James chapter 5 this morning, verse 12, be looking for what is it he tells us to stop doing that we have a propensity to do, but what does he tell us to start doing in its place. There's a put off here and there's a put on. So be looking for what the command is about our speech in the midst of trials. Can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God as we're at James chapter 5, just one verse this morning, verse number 12. The words will also be on the screen for you and I'm reading out the English standard version. James 5, 12. But above all my brothers, 
do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you show us what to expect in life, and you show us how to walk in faith and to walk with you in the midst of whatever we come across. And God, I pray this morning that you take your word and you'd apply it to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that you'll convict us where we need conviction, you'll encourage us where we need encouragement, and God, that you will pour out your grace on us to make us more and more into the people you desire for us to be. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So one thing I want you to see from this text this morning is simply this, friends. We are to be a people of profound truthfulness in a deceptive world. That God's plan for us of how we walk in faith, how we live out what we claim to believe in terms of our speech, and in terms of walking through trials, that we are to be a people of profound truthfulness in a deceptive world. Friends, we are to be different as followers of Christ. We are to be salt and light, and that includes our speech. So in a world where the norm from childhood to adulthood is to break promises— in a world to where, from childhood to adulthood, we find ways to try to wiggle out of commitments we have made. We are to be countercultural. We are to be a people of profound truthfulness, not just in the times it's convenient, but in all the ways, in all areas of our lives, and in all situations. We're to be a people of profound truthfulness in a deceptive world. Let's unpack that this morning from James chapter 5 here. First of all, the reality, friends, is that we live in a deceptive world. Our sin nature, the sin nature of all people, manifests itself very early on. Hence, when I had you think back to childhood, how easy it is for children to break commitments, but how easy it is for us as adults to continue in those patterns. There was some study some years ago that found the average American can identify at least 13 intentional lies they speak every week. Now, I think that's kind of low, honestly, but the average American in the study can identify at least 13 intentional deception, broken promises, lies they utter every week. Another biblical counselor who I really like in one of his books on deception cited a study where he estimates that people lie at least 20 times a day. At least 20 times a day. Friends, lying is so prevalent. You see companies that lie about their products. You see companies that break their promises to their customers. You see friends who've broken promises to you and you've been hurt by it. And you see it among politics, right? As we're coming off a political season, we see broken promises from politicians on all sides. In fact, there was a chaplain of the Kansas Senate. He was also a pastor. He was the one who would open their sessions with prayer. And he addresses the human heart because he had an interesting prayer some years back in terms of how he opened their session. Look at how he prayed over these politicians at the start of a new Senate session in Kansas. He said, Omniscient Father, help us to know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing, another side just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling us half the truth, Give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> it kind of hits at the heart of it. It's kind of humorous and kind of funny, but it shows human nature, doesn't it? That we live in a world where the default, the norm, is to not tell the truth. The default, the norm, is to be willing to break our promises. And if we are honest with it, we've all been hurt by broken promises. We've all been hurt by deception. But friends, this is not a new problem. Human nature has not changed. James addressed the same problem some t almost 2,000 years ago in the early church that he is writing to. And look at how he addresses this at the problem he's addressing here. Go back to verse 12 of James 5 here. Notice his command here. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear. Now, when we see the word swear, we start thinking about profanity. Now, it's good not to swear, not to use profane words, but that's not what he's talking about here. That's, again, another sermon for another day. What James is talking about by the word swear is making oaths 
are making promises. But not just general promises. James is addressing making promises of what you will do or what has happened by appealing to God or by appealing to some sacred object to try to boost what you're saying. It's making promises by appealing to God or appealing to some sacred object to strengthen your promise. Now, people still do this today. Have you ever had someone tell you, hey, I I swear by God, I really did that. People still try to boost what they're saying by saying, I swear by God. That's what James means by swearing here, by oaths, or yeah, God is my witness. The same idea of trying to boost what you're saying by appealing to God, or I swear on the Bible. Those are all modern expressions of what James is addressing here. Now, at the time, they didn't use quite the expressions we used, but it was the same idea. Go back to verse 12 here. It says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So James is addressing the propensity we have to make promises, especially when life is hard, and trying to appeal to God as our witness. Like, God sees this, or to, to appeal to sacred objects to boost our promises. Now, to understand why James says don't do this, we need some context from the early Jewish background, from the Old Testament. Remember, James's original audience were Jewish background Christians, so he's writing with them in view here. And so we need some context that they would automatically know. First of all, in the Old Testament, swearing in this way was allowed. In fact, swearing in this way, making promises by appealing to God, was not just allowed, it was even encouraged. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. You're told, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast him. And by his name, it doesn't say you shall not swear, it says you shall swear. So in the Old Testament, you were allowed to make promises by appealing to God as your witness. But the catch in the Old Testament, the second thing to realize is if you did this, You had to do what you promised. There was no wiggle room allowed to get you out of whatever commitment you made. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, points this out for us. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So in the Old Testament, a life of walking in faith did include swearing in the way James says here, making these oaths, these promises, these pledges by appealing to God or appealing to sacred things to boost what you're saying, but you had to do what you said. So why is it in the Old Testament you're told to do this, and all of a sudden now in the New Testament, James is saying, don't do this anymore. Stop making these type promises. Well, again, we need to understand some background of what happened at the time. You see, the Jewish religious leaders And think about how Jesus viewed the Jewish religious leaders, right? You think of the words he would say to them. The Jewish religious leaders developed a very extensive system, and they taught people how to keep your promise at times and how to break your promise to others. They took this idea of swearing, of making promises by appealing to God or by appealing to things, and they developed a system to help you learn when you had to keep your word and when you could get out of keeping your word. And it was crazy what the religious leaders did and how they taught people. So, if you want to promise someone something, but you didn't really want to do what you promised, all you had to do was swear by the temple. So, if you said, hey, I promise by the temple I'll bring you two goats tomorrow, you can keep your goats. You didn't have to bring them because you were swearing by the temple. But, but if, you, if you slipped up and said, but I swear by the gold in the temple, now all of a sudden you had to do what you said. So, I swear by the gold in the temple I'll repay you tomorrow. Well, you were in trouble in the culture if you didn't repay. They gave you away by certain phrases. If you use those, you had to do what you said, but you can make promises to other people in the faith community. But if you use those expressions, you did not have to keep your promise. So they did the same thing with the altar. If you promised by the altar, you didn't have to do it. So if you said, hey, I promised by the altar, I'll repay you that loan, you can keep your money. You're fine. That was a way to make a promise and not have to keep it. But if you said, I promised by my gift on the altar, well, now you better do it or you were in trouble. So what happened 
was the Jewish religious leaders took this idea of swearing from the Old Testament, this idea of making oaths and appealing to God, and they took them and they corrupted it to where they taught a system to enable our sinful nature to be able to get out of promises. It was an elaborate system to help you learn to break your word and to do it religiously in God's name. The deception of the world had crept into the life of God's people. So that's why it's not allowed anymore. And James is not creating something new here. He's actually taking the words of Jesus who rebukes this whole system and rebukes this heart that wants to get out of breaking our word. So I want you to see from Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, Jesus already addresses us before James ever does. And now before we, before we throw stones at the people who did this, being like, well, that's so foolish. How in the world could religious people dare try to find a way to not keep their word? Because we've got to look back in our own hearts as well. It's easy to throw stones at this system and think, how could the Jewish leaders convince people of this? But friends, how often do you and I still try to mince our words and say things in a certain way to give us some wiggle room to get out of things? So look at what Jesus says to the religious leaders. And notice the terms he uses for them. Woe to you blind guides. And Jesus doesn't hold back words. He's talking to the religious leaders who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Again, that's one of those oaths that if you swear by the temple, you don't have to do what you said. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Verse 17, Jesus continues there. You blind fools. Again, still speaking to these leaders who taught this. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Then in verse 18, he carries on. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. You don't have to keep your word. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. And he concludes here in verse number 19. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. What Jesus is doing is rejecting a whole system that you only have to keep some of your words. He's rejecting the whole teaching that it's okay to break your commitments, that it's okay to only do some of the things you pledge to do. And he rebukes those who taught people to do this and calls them blind guides or blind fools or blind men because they're so deceived and they're deceiving so many other people. That's why if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, you hear what Jesus teaches. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's referencing back to those Old Testament texts that allowed you to make these type promises. Um, and then verse 34 that follows. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Again, why is he changing what we used to be allowed? Because he knows the human heart propensity to try to find ways to get out of those laws. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or the throne of God, verse 35. There he goes. Or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King, Go on to verses 36 and 37 as well. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And then verse 37, well, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Sound familiar? See where James is pulling from on this? He's going back to Jesus' own teaching. What Jesus is saying is you cannot make distinctions in which promises you keep and which ones you don't have to keep. There's no way to say, well, I only have to keep some of the things I commit to, but not others. He says, stop trying to find ways to break your promise. Now James pulls that out and summarizes that, so go back to James chapter 5, verse 12. And he is agreeing with Jesus and building on what Jesus teaches here to remind us that we must be a people of profound truthfulness. And to do that, I love the way he does this, because he does the same thing that Paul does in Ephesians. He gives you a put off and a put on. You hear me talk about this a lot, but put off when the sins you're supposed to stop doing, but then put on what are the righteous things you're to do and its place. So, in talking about being a people of truthfulness, James lays out for us a put off and a put on. Let's start with a put off. That's what we looked at a minute ago. The put off is to put off oaths, put off this type of swearing, these type of promises. 
So back in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So he tells us to put off this type of promise making. There's really two things included in this. Number one, stop looking for ways to break your promises. At the core of this prohibition is stop looking for ways to break your promises. Because our human heart's tendency is to like, I know I committed to that, but I don't really want to keep that word now because something else better in my mind has come along or this is now inconvenient to me. And so he's saying, don't do that. Stop looking for ways to get out of what you promised. But the second part of this, he says, stop appealing to sacred things to boost what you say. Stop appealing to sacred things. You don't need to say, I swear by God, or God is my witness, or I promise you on the Bible. We don't need to appeal to other things to boost our words. Why do we not need those other things? Well, in the words of one scholar I read this week, he said this. He said, the need for oaths comes from an unsure conscience. If the need for us making oaths or promises comes from an unsure conscience. Friends, if we find ourselves having to be like, hey, I really, really promise you this, or hey, God is my witness, we find those type of expressions coming out of our mouths, it's probably because our conscience is a little bit unsure, it's a little bit uneasy, that we're afraid that we're not telling the truth, and so we're trying to appeal to something else to boost what we're doing. It's an unsure conscience. And so Jesus and James now tells us to put that off, quit trying to get out of your promises and quit trying to appeal to sacred things. You don't need to do that. He tells us to put it off. But as we've seen over and over in our other studies, friends, holiness is not just not sinning, right? Holiness is now replacing that sin with whatever Christ-like virtue should go in its place. So if the put-off is putting off these oaths, what are we to put on instead? And that's the other thing James tells us. We're to put on straightforward, honest speech. We're to put on straightforward, clear, honest speech. So it's not enough to not just break our promise. We need to replace that with intentional truth-telling, with straightforward honest speech. Look at verse 12 again. He says in the middle of verse 12, but is what you put on instead, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, let your yes be a true yes. Let your no be a true no. So if you intend to do something, yes should be sufficient. If you don't plan to do something, a no should be sufficient. And if you notice in here, there's no phrase that we love in our culture. Well, I'll think about it. What does that mean in the South? I'll think about it means I don't want to do it, but I don't want to tell you no, so I'm going to give you unclear, untruthful speech to get out of having to tell you directly that no, I have other plans. James says, let your yes be a true yes, let your no be a true no, and there's nothing in here that has a third caveat that says that I can kind of deceive you by saying I'll think about it when I've already made up my mind. In other words, speak clearly and honestly with no wiggle room for someone to interpret differently than what you're trying to communicate. Don't speak in such a way to leave them some room to be deceived or misled or hoping they'll interpret differently. Our speech should be a clear yes or no. We should have no exaggeration in our speech. We should not conceal key details. We shouldn't be, be flat, flattering other people if we don't mean it. We shouldn't have hidden agendas. We shouldn't shift the blame. Friends, we shouldn't even have a, a body language lies. Where someone's like, oh, wow, I'm so surprised when you're not surprised. That's including this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We need to be a people, a people of truthful speech. We've seen this before in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. In Ephesians 4, we saw this some years ago, a year or two ago, and we saw it. Do we have that up on the screen there? There you go, Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, or so put off, what do we put on? Let you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That means we're to be a people, friends, of profound truthfulness. When we say yes, we mean it. When we say no, we mean it. If we say we'll do something, we plan to do it. If we say we don't want to do something, we really don't want to do something. If we say we can't do something, it's because we can't do something. We're to be a people of profound truth-telling in all areas of our lives, not just when it's convenient, 
Not just when it helps us, not just when it's easy, but in all things. But why? Well, there's a myriad of reasons we give for why it's so important to be truth-tellers. When we studied Ephesians 4.25 two years ago, we talked about the importance of it for unity of the body, that truth-telling was so essential for building up the church. And that's a good reason. You can go back and review that sermon if you want to go deeper in that reason. But James brings out another reason here. Go back to verse 12 of why we're to be a people of truth-telling. Notice what he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here it is. So that you may not fall under condemnation. Friends, why are we to be a people of truth-telling? Because there's a serious warning here if we choose not to. And he says, we will fall under condemnation. Now remember, he's writing to believers, so he's not here speaking of final judgment of eternal condemnation. He's speaking here to the accounting we will give before God one day. We've seen this in so many of our texts about speech as we've looked through this throughout James, but we will give an account before a holy God of every word we have spoken, every careless word we've spoken, we will give an account for. That means when we see God face to face one day, friends, we will have to give an account for every lie, every broken promise, every time we've tried to mislead someone else. And so it's a warning here for us. And yet so often, friends, I fear that we treat very casually this warning about thinking about our speech. We treat very trivially what we say, and we excuse all sorts of white lies. We excuse all sorts of exaggeration in our speech. We excuse all sorts of broken promises, and we miss the accounting that we will give before God. A text that kind of helps me think about the accounting we'll give, but also the reality check of this Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. As you think back to the prophets of old, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, you have this incredible scene in heaven where Isaiah has a vision of, and one calls to another and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook it, the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, just stop there. So Isaiah's seeing all this, and what does he do at that point? He's like, oh, yay, Jesus is here. I'm so happy. Let me give Jesus a hug. Now, what does he do? Look at verse 5. When he encounters the holiness of God, he doesn't do what our culture does when we think about Jesus. He goes, woe is me. He sees the holiness of God. He sees the glory of God, and he immediately realizes how unworthy and sinful he is. Not like, I'm going to give Jesus a hug because he's my best friend. He gets the holiness of God, and he says, notice this, the first sin he thinks about when he sees the holiness of God, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the holiness of God, and he got the significance of having to know what our speech is like in the presence of a holy God. Whereas God holds us so accountable in this area for so many reasons. But can I remind us this morning, one reason God holds us so accountable in our speech is because we're to be image bearers of God. That we are to be image bearers. We're to reflect the character of God before a lost world. If you think about all of God's attributes, all of his character. Now, about four years ago, we did a study of the attributes of God. These are his nature, his character. And one of the attributes of God is God is truth. He's not just a God who speaks truth. He, in his nature, is a God of truth. He is a God of complete truthfulness in all things. God cannot break a promise. God cannot lie. God will not exaggerate. God will never go back on his word. God is a God of complete truthfulness in all things. And if you think about his attributes, some of his attributes are communicable attributes. They're attributes he shares with his people. Truthfulness is a communicable attribute of God. We are to be image bearers of God who speak the truth and reflect God's character before a lost world. And so God takes it very seriously if we choose to reject his character and live a different way. 
God will hold us accountable for every broken promise, every lie, every time we've tried to even slightly deceive someone, every time we've misled someone, every time we break a commitment, because every time, friends, we do those things, we are ceasing to be a reflection of his character before a lost world. And so he tells us here, he commands us here, back in verse 12 of chapter 5, he tells us to put off swearing, put off trying to boost our words, and instead to put on straightforward, clear, honest speech. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That raises one last question for us this morning. How is truth-telling possible? We think about back to our childhood and even joking about crossing our fingers. We struggle throughout our lives with truth-telling. So how is truth-telling possible? Let me remind you of something. James chapter 3, verse 8. If you go back just a page or two in your copy of God's Word. But no human being can tame the tongue. So how is truth-telling possible? Can I tame my own tongue? No. Can you tame your tongue? No. We can't tame our own tongue. So any of our efforts of what I call white-knuckle determination, self-effort, just willpower is going to leave us falling flat on our face, still deceiving people, still breaking promises. We cannot tame our own tongue. But who can? God can. James chapter 4, verse 6. I love this verse. We've seen it over and over. But God gives more grace. God can do the impossible. The God who can part the sea, the God who can speak the world into being, is a God who can take my tongue and your tongue and tame it and turn it into tongues that are truth-telling tongues. He does so through the means of grace. He gives us grace, and as we see over and over, we just put ourselves in the path of grace. We get in his word, which convicts us of our speech. We ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit who convicts us when we fall short in our speech. We pray, and as we commune with him, he conforms us. We get into community, into the church, and we lovingly help each other grow in our speech. But friends, there's one other means of grace I've been pondering this week in light of our speech. And I want to suggest that one thing that God does to tame our tongues is he creates in us an awe of him. He creates in us an awe of him. Do you realize something, friends? If we are in awe of God... We're going to be less in awe of ourselves. And if we are less in awe of ourselves, we're going to be a lot less prone to exaggerate, to lie, to break promises, to boost ourselves. We think about that. The more we're in awe of God, the less we're in awe of ourselves, and the less we feel the need to deceive, to break promises, because we're not trying to boost ourselves up, because we're in awe of Him, not in awe of ourselves. And so likewise, God reminds us of our identity in Christ. I think one of the tools of grace He uses to tame our tongues is He reminds us of who we are in Christ. Because if we remember that we're loved by God, that we're accepted, that we belong to him, that we're seated at his table, and all these beautiful images, again, we're going to be a lot less prone to be feeling insecure and fearful and needing to lie and needing to break promises because we understand we belong to him. And so I'm convinced this week as I think about the means of grace that God uses in all of him and reminding us of our identity in him to guard our tongues and to help us be a people of profound truthfulness in a deceptive world. So I want to ask you this morning, friends, think about your speech the last week. Maybe we go more simply. Think about your speech yesterday. <laughs> Does our speech yesterday, our speech this last week, reflect an awe of God or an awe of ourselves? Does our speech from yesterday or from this last week reflect that we are secure in our identity in Christ? Or does our speech reflect an insecurity that makes us having to boost our words or makes us even breaking promises because we're trying to make sure our life goes like we want it to go? Or do we understand who God is and who we are in Christ. Friends, we're to be a people of profound truthfulness in the deceptive world, and that'll come as we experience God's grace and as we live in all of him. We get a chance to reflect on that this morning and to reflect on many other things through communion this morning. Communion is a chance for us to reflect on questions like I just asked. Am I in awe of God? Am I understanding his grace? Am I being transformed 
by His grace? Is my speech being changed because I'm a child of God? Is my thought pattern being changed because I'm a child of God? Friends, we're about to have a time in just a moment of some reflection for us. For us to think about what Christ has done for us and to think about how we're walking with Him. Because if you're around Gateway a good bit, you hear us talk about grace a lot. It's probably one of my favorite words. We talk about grace upon grace all the time here. And it's an amazing word. It's an amazing concept of God's free gift to undeserving sinners. That is us. But if you flip the coin of grace, yes, it's free to us, but grace came with a high cost. You see, God can't give grace to sinners unless their sins have been paid for. God is so holy, he cannot overlook sin. He has to punish every sin. And either that takes an eternity for us in hell to experience his punishment for all the many ways we sin, including all of our broken promises, all of our deceit, all the ways our words have not been yes and no. It takes an eternity or Christ pays for them once for all. I want us to hear Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, as we prepare this morning to celebrate what Christ did so we can experience grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 tells us, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, friends. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been, now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, friends? Let that sink in. What God did that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He looked upon us in our helpless state, and instead of condemning us as we, were, we deserved, instead Christ died for us, and all of our sins as his people got put on Christ, and he experienced the wrath of God, and when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he is experiencing the wrath that you and I should have experienced for all eternity, and he took it in our place, but not just he took the wrath we deserve, all of Christ's righteousness got put on us, and so when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us as ones who struggle with our speech or struggle with honesty or struggle with clear communication or struggle in these ways. He sees Christ's righteousness. So friends, you and I, if we're a child of God, can approach the throne of God with confidence because we approach covered in Christ's righteousness. This morning as we celebrate communion, we'll take the bread. And it reminds us that Christ's body was on, hung on the cross. He endured the worst form of suffering ever invented by mankind to take the wrath that we deserve. We take the juice, and that reminds us of his blood that was poured out for our sins. We're told in Scripture that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we take this to remember, to reflect that, yes, we rejoice in the grace that we have, the grace that can tame our tongues, the grace that can change us, the grace that enables us to know God. But that grace came with a cost, and we reflect on that cost this morning. As such, friends, communion is only for followers of Christ. If you do not know God, if you're not in awe of Him, if you're not being transformed by Him, this is not something for you to take. This is only for those who know they belong to God. Not that they pray to prayer, but, but they have genuine faith that is changing them. And so if you're not a child of God or not sure you are, use the time just to not take the elements, but just to sit where you are and pray and to reflect and to ask God to show Himself to you for His Word to come alive to you. But friends, if you know Christ... If he is your Lord and your Savior, that you know you belong to him. If God is stirring within your hearts affections for him, if you know you belong to God, this is for you to come and celebrate. It doesn't, remember, it doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. If you know Christ, you're welcome to celebrate this with us. So what we're going to do, friends, is we want you to have time to reflect. Communion is a time for reflection. So in just a minute, our musicians are going to come and play. And as they play, I want you to take time where you are to talk to the Lord 
to ponder what Christ did for you, to think about his grace, to thank him for it. If he's convicting you of any sins, ask him, Holy Spirit, show me. Are there any sins that I've not confessed? And to confess your sins to God and use it as a few minutes just to pray and to commune with your Lord who loves you so. Think about the song we sang earlier, how deep the Father's love for us. Use this time to reflect on that and to celebrate how that's possible because of what Christ has done for you. During this time, if you've not received elements, they're available in the back of the room and also up here. If you have dietary needs, there's dietary-friendly, gluten-free communion elements at both the front and the back. But most of all, we want you to use this time to take a few minutes to pray. And then whenever you feel ready, go and take the elements. You don't have to wait for all of us to take it at the same time. Just as you pray and feel ready, they're in the seats in front of you. Go and take them, take the bread and the juice, and use the time to pray. And I'll close us in prayer in just a few minutes. What a precious reminder this is. That we as your people get to celebrate together this sacred moment. Getting to pause and to reflect on, on how we can be recipients of your grace. To realize, Lord, that when we were still sinners, when we were still lost in our sin with no hope, Christ died for us. God, you didn't look at us because we were worthy and good. You looked at us when we were sinners, when we were your enemies. 
God, in your kindness, you chose to turn our hearts to you, to do what we could not do, and to put faith into unbelieving hearts. And God, we are so grateful that we are the recipients of your grace. Yet, Lord, we pause this morning, remember the high cost that came with that, with that free gift that we celebrate, that we enjoy. It came with the cost. It came with the Lord Jesus suffering innocently, dying on that cruel Roman cross, having his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So Lord, we are so thankful that we will never, ever experience your wrath, that we will never feel your anger, because it was all put on Christ. And when he cried out, it is finished. It was finished. And we don't have to bear that anymore, because every sin we've committed, will commit, is already paid for by Christ. Lord, I pray that truth would drive us to want more of your grace. God, the understanding of what you've done will not lead us to complacency, but God, would stir our hearts to want to know more fully the God who has redeemed us, would stir more fully in our hearts, God, the desire to walk in holiness before you, not to gain your approval, but because we already have it. God, I pray that even reflecting on these things would be a means of grace that you use to tame our tongues this week, to let us be a people of profound truthfulness, God, so that we can build up other believers, so that we can be salt and light in a very dark, deceptive world. That, our, that God, you're working through us to speak the truth in love would make a difference in the church and in the community around us. So God, we thank you for this time we've had to worship you and to praise you. And I pray that these prayers we've just prayed, these time of reflection we've had would not be limited to just these few minutes on this Sunday morning. We've got all this week long, your Holy Spirit within us will be stirring our hearts to want to commune with you every day, to want to read your word every day, to want to pray every day, to want to sit in silence before you every day, and to listen to the sound of your voice. How would you stir those desires in us so that we may be the people you desire us to be? We ask it all in Jesus' name. And then would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning? As we remember your side. 
feast, God, as we take in these elements, God, that, that you just gave the example for, God, as you sit around that table with your disciples before you are going to go to the cross, God. And you just explained that this bread was going to be your body that was going to be broken, and this wine was going to be your blood that was going to be poured out. Knowing that the cup of God's wrath that you are about to consume, God. And sharing this communion with your disciples, God. And now we can partake of that same communion, God, as we take of this bread, Father, and we take of this juice, God. And we eat this bread in remembrance of your body that was broken, God, on our behalf, God. And drink this juice, God, in remembrance of the blood that was shed on our behalf, God, as you took your Father's wrath, God, to make a way for lost sinners, God, to have a way back to you, God, that you could justify us, God, that you could be the justifier of wicked people, God, and keep the glory in your name because your Son was going to take the wrath that we rightfully deserve, God, and he was going to bear it on the cross so that, God, now we can take these elements and long for that wedding feast, God, when we seat around your throne, God, and we eat in the presence of God Almighty, not as enemies, God, but as friends, sons, daughters, adopted into your kingdom, God, adopted into your presence. Father, thank you for this gift of grace, God, that was made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.